multi-million dollar business, an international brand that journey through liquidation and beyond. That's the story of Shoes of Prey and its founder, Jodie Fox. My name is Ali Hill and this is Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness and the mess of our world. As a psychologist, I know the power of carving out space to truly connect and share our stories. And that is the magic of this podcast. Now, today's interview is going to feel a little bit like a time travel. I sat down and connected with Jody in June of 2020. This is one of those episodes that has been sitting on my shelf, uh, not for any other reason than just busyness and time. So I totally understand the irony of a podcast about busyness that uh, has taken nearly 12 months to hit the airways. And then it got to a point of, is it too late? Should I put it out? Uh, But I recently listened to the interview again and it is a timeless conversation. So it is one that I want to bring to you and definitely want to share. Jodie Fox is an extraordinary human being. She grew up in Lismore, a country town in New South Wales, daughter of a Sicilian mother and an Australian father. She started in law before she found her feet in Shoes of Prey. This business went from an idea tossed around on the beach by three friends to a startup to a venture-backed global business with more than 200 staff and over 27 million US dollars in funding. Jodie has written about her experience, the highs and the bloody tough lows in her book, Reboot, probably more than you'll ever want to know about starting a global business. Jodie shares in this conversation what life is like navigating the new identity of being a mum, the practical tools she has used to manage her mental health and the lessons she has learnt along the way. I know that you're going to walk away from this conversation with the sense that even when life throws a curveball and geez, hasn't it done that in the last 12 months, that really anything is possible. Please soak up the insights and the wisdom from the lifelong learner, Jodie Fox. Jodie, it's such a delight to be hanging out in this virtual studio with you. (laughs) Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a new world. It's a new world. We had um, kind of anticipated or hoped to be able to do this face-to-face. I remember we talked months ago and a lot has changed in that time. So being able to do this virtually is uh, is is a real treat in amongst, uh, yeah, all the different changes. Now, one of the changes that has happened uh, since the start of 2020 is that you have become a mum. I'm interested to know, <laughs> and congratulations, I'm interested to know what has been different around your expectations of what you thought it was going to be like uh, from what your experience is is like now? Gosh, well, thank you. It's It's been single-handedly the most extraordinary experience. Um, and I know that a lot of people use words like that and describe it that way, but I find it really challenging to give any proper or different wording to it because it is just such a beautiful experience. Um, in terms of my expectations, I really felt, uh, prepared for the worst. (laughs) It's good to be. (laughs) Um, so I'm in the very fortunate position of having a beautiful community of women around me who have had children or, um, were having children right around the same time as I did. And they were, you know, really generous in sharing kind of the lumps and bumps of it and also sharing, you know, what some of the worst case scenarios can look like as well. And we've been 
very, very lucky in many ways um, to have a, a pretty garden variety situation, actually, <laughs> which I'll take. So, um, you know, there's, there's, you know, stretches of sleep that are certainly keeping me happy. And I've reacquainted myself with coffee, which I'm also really enjoying. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that I didn't anticipate and I'm still really looking to find words around is the really extraordinary identity shift that happens with becoming a mum. So I've always very strongly associated myself with and kind of my value and confidence very much with the professional side of my life. Uh, and, you know, there was on the closure of my business, you know, that was the first kind of challenge to that identity. Uh, you know, my next project was writing a book about the experience to kind of share what that sort of roller coaster feels like from a very personal perspective because there's lots of great business books out there but you know let's get into some of the truth of the human experience and you know then on becoming a mum like a lot of that you know I sort of plan to be able to stop and take a breath and really be really present with my child which was an unbelievable gift to be able to do but really challenging in terms of being comfortable with my new sources of who I am and what that means for me and what the future looks like building off of that as well. All of the, absolutely every goalpost had shifted um, measures for confidence and value completely changed, whether it's the confidence of looking at, you know, seeing your paycheck come in every week, you know, or being able to, um, go and have professional conversations and, you know, be really actively shaping what that next step looks like, you know, it'll really take a backseat to this extraordinary experience. But, um, in, despite feeling like I'd done lots of preparation for it, um, it's absolutely been a challenge. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a really good point that you bring up around that shift because it's not one that we often have a conversation about and it evolves as you continue to go through often I remember, so I've got two kids that are 10 and 12 and um, I remember at that time thinking around well, it was almost kind of an unsaid of, um, well, when will I go back? But there's no mm-hmm. going back. I think it's, uh, but nor is it changing who you've been. It's not cutting it off. I actually think a big part of it is the identity expansion. How do we expand mm who we are now, what am I actually interested in? Where do I actually want to spend my time? And none of it's right and none of it is wrong. It just is different. And bringing voice to that conversation is, um, is really, is really key. And knowing that you can choose in that is really important as well. Yeah, absolutely. Was, I had a really interesting conversation with someone where I was sort of saying, you know, the blessing in all of this is, you know, I really want to spend some of that time when my child's going to sleep in the evening or, um, you know, when I'm <laughs> doing kind of the myriad of little things when you are kind of stuck under a sleeping child or <laughs> something like that to be as thoughtful as I can about what those next steps are going to be. And, um, one of the interesting things this person said to me was, well, also don't forget, like whatever you choose to do has to be really worthy. Um, also financially, as well as in terms of the opportunity for you to choose not to spend time with your child. And I was like, wow, like I, I had just, I, I hadn't really put it on that 
with that level of priority in my mind. Of course, I felt it towards my child, but I had, you know, kind of been piling everything up like, okay, I've got to do that next thing is equally side by side with my child. And really, I think, um, I'm not sure how I would make that balance to be honest, but I really think hard about it. Um, but it was really nice to kind of gain that perspective and, yeah, one of, one of the other things that's really challenging about it is I, I know that I've done a lot of very complex things in the past. Um, and when I think of the day-to-day with uh, with a little one, it's not necessarily complex things um, in our case that we're dealing with, which is very, very lucky. I fully appreciate how lucky we are in that respect. But it's relentless. <laughs> so, it's really interesting to be in this strange vortex where initially like, and still some days I can really beat myself up going, I should be getting more done. I should be you know, how am I getting stuck between all these little things that are really simple, but, you know, they just, you, they require such presence of you, which is a lesson in life itself. It's, uh, it's humbling in, in those moments. Extremely. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Um, and also realizing that this is uh, for want of a better word, it's not the right word, but this is the job at the moment. Yeah. It just happens to be at 3am and no one else <laughs> is around <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, not, not yeah. trying to do, um, another role unless it, it really, um, you know, I think it is in the, it's sitting in the unknown and the questioning. There's certainly plenty of parents who actually go, I'm a better parent if I have something else. I'm a better parent if actually I prioritize that because that's a, a real key um, source of who I am and that's that sense of identity as well. Totally. You're, you're totally right. The, an interesting thing that I also discovered in that is I do have some really extraordinary support around me, which I'm infinitely grateful for. Um, but I find, um, sometimes I'm hesitant to lean into it because the opportunity to take a moment to go and do X, Y, Z, but then every fiber in my body is screaming, you know, like discomfort with, you know, kind of popping out to do something on my own. It's, it's such an interesting paradigm to be stepping into. And I'm far, 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 far down the list on, you know, this is something so many women have been through. So I'm, I'm sure there's um, a lot more insightful things out there around it, but it's, it's yeah, very wild to experience. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm encouraged by you even asking that question or identity even so soon after having a, having a bar, because I think it is something that continues to expand and it's really valuable for people to hear, hear that just sitting in the unknown and that's okay in amongst, well, you know, um, these great moments, but really just mundane (laughs) everyday kind of moments and things as well. But thank you for giving it a beautiful word, expand the opportunity to expand. I'm actually going to take that with me. So thank you. That's actually such a gem. (laughs) <laughs> we, you mentioned before about your business and we'll definitely kind of talk about mm. your book. Now, we we, um, we just had a moment before. I understand you grew up in Lismore, so in the far north coast of New South Wales, <laughs> one of the country towns which yeah. I kind of grew up around that area. So I went to high school and um, primary school in Moolumbah. My parents lived in Ganellabar for a period of time. Um, what was it about growing up in essentially what is a country town? It is a, mm-hmm. whilst it is big for far north coast of New South Wales, it, it is a country town what was it about growing up in in Lismore um what did that instill in you that that became useful as a um as a trait or a characteristic uh in going into business I really think that growing up in and you are right even though 
the population is reasonable in Lismore. Um, just the way that it's structured, it is very much a country town. And I guess some evidence of that is, you know, when you go downtown into the city, it's two blocks. You know, the the airport is lovely, but effectively in a paddock, um, <laughs> which is fine. But it has an airport. Um, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's pretty cool. I really love that with the airport, there's an arrivals and departures door, but they both go into the same room. Um, (laughs) It's just, it's really cool. So the things that I think were really useful and that I really took with me into my career from growing up in Lismore is when you grow up in a community like that, um, relationships are really critical. And those relationships are going to happen in every part of your life. The person that you go to school with, parent might be the person at the chemist downtown that you go to, or you'll know the name of the person that serves you at the grocery store. You know, it's very, those relationships are significant. And so there's a really strong element of accountability in your behavior as well, um, which becomes tricky when you get a little bit older. And I remember the nightclub in town was, was only one and it had a curfew of 1am. So really, you know, everyone was going to know what happened if you <laughs> had a messy evening. But, you know, I, I do think there is um, that kind of personal accountability to the way that you're treating people and your the way that you're behaving is something that, is, is really positive in making sh- sure that you really are looking at the way you are affecting the people that you come across in your life and really, you know, engaging on a really real level because in a community that's much smaller, it's very evident if that's not the case. And so growing up is that being with that just being a part of, you know, sort of the DNA, I think really helped me a lot in business because, you know, I've had like a pretty strong discomfort with anything that wasn't really true and real in all of that engagement that comes with it. A lot of business is very relationship based. And I do think that that kind of warmth connection, um, sort of you know, personal accountability was something that served beautifully throughout that uh, business life. Yeah. You can't hide from anyone. You know, you're potentially going to run into mm. the street. And so oh, yeah. you need to invest in those <laughs> uh, connections and, and relationships. And as you say, you can't get away with anything uh, in yeah. particular. In some ways I frame that like a little bit negatively, which is oh, hold yourself accountable or something, you know, people will know. But also from the other side, like the richness and depth of those uh, kind of connections is really cool. So it is a, it is a very positive thing. Sorry, I framed that quite negatively. No, 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 no. So. I, no, I didn't hear it that way at all. I think oh, it's more good. just around um, that. It, well, I think it is um, – not so much accountability, but being seen. And so you have to keep mm. diving back into those those conversations in the same way that you do, I imagine, yeah, certainly um, in business, you well, you need to kind of keep turning up to those conversations. You can't just totally. avoid and then, you know, you might see someone in six months' time because uh, there'll be mm-hmm. some some connection along the way. Now, I understand after school you you actually went into law in terms mm-hmm. of following, you know, career and trajectory uh, in that direction. What was it about law that drew you in that direction? Do you know, I um, had never had really aspirations of being a lawyer in particular, but as I was getting to the end of my high school studies and my marks were sort of were projecting what my marks would be, I realised I could get into a law degree and there was an, I was very curious about international business and there was a dual degree that I could do of that. Um, I'd always been extremely creatively focused and the driving factor was a real thirst to create a learning and understanding for myself. And that really simply was, I didn't understand how the world worked. And 
sure I could understood poetry beautifully and dance and you know I really enjoyed acting enormously and all of that kind of stuff but um when I watched the news you know I didn't you know I didn't know what was going on or understand how it came together and I really felt that if I were going to be in a position to really kind of serve any bigger dreams or create something that I would need to really understand how the world worked and a law degree felt like um, a great way to understand those mechanics. From there, you then went on to, well, not straight away, but certainly in 2009, launching Shoes of Prey. Tell me mm-hmm. a little bit about the, I guess, the the pathway from being a lawyer to then launching Shoes of Prey. Well, it definitely wasn't straight. So <laughs> um, I was really fortunate to work for the law firm, law firm that I did. Um, the people that I worked with were just really smart and really excellent people to learn from as well. And I still think of those people in that firm with such great respect for the foundation that it gave me. Um, but it really didn't make my heart sing. And I sort of took myself through this exercise, which crazily, like, you know, I'm doing again now as I hit this sort of new crossroads again to kind of reinvent and evolve, um, where I wrote a list of all the things that were really important to my happiness and not just in my career, but just in life. What, what did I care about? What motivated me? What did I find interesting? What would develop me more? And then I started putting that side by side with lists of what careers could provide those. And the closest lineup to that was advertising (laughs) because it still had, you know, really thoughtful strategies sitting underneath it, really digging in to understand people. It was very much about building something as opposed to taking something apart, which unfortunately law can be sometimes. It was also creative and I'd missed being creative so very, very much. And so I I'd started to have some conversations in that and I found an agency that I just really loved the idea of working for. So I, I remember one day I got this brief for due diligence into my office and this huge number of folders just were wheeled into my office at the law firm. And I was like, Oh my God. And so I just called, called the agency that I wanted to work for. Um, I had an interview the next day, um, a job offer very shortly after that. And, um, so I resigned and I remember during, after my resignation, I think it must've been literally days after my resignation, the global financial crisis hit and I had been working in the securitization team. So you know, it was kind of, which is the, one of the structures underpinning the GFC. So, um, yeah, it was wild timing to be shifting and yeah, it was really, it felt right. And it was great to go into advertising and learning about building brands and, this whole new environment of um, not having to watch every minute of my day and allocate it and being able to have that really expansive thinking around, you know, sort of creating something right from scratch, which was super, super exciting. Um, And it was during that time that, you know, I heard about being able to design your your own shoes in a little store in Hong Kong. And it was my mother-in-law at the time who had kind of visited the store and told me about it. So on a, on a stopover, I popped in there and had the time of my life. (laughs) I ended up designing 14 pairs of shoes in one and a half hours. There was just, you know, swatches and sketches everywhere. And it was so fantastic. And, um, on returning home and my girlfriend seeing those, they were like, this is so cool. And then my two co-founders, 
they were super keen to do something online. They'd been working at Google and had seen that online retail was just starting to get traction and they were just looking for an idea. And so Design Your Own Shoes became the idea. Yeah, I hadn't even, um, you know, put two and two together in terms of global financial crisis and <laughs> kind of launching launching a business and, a, and an idea. Where did you go from those those 14 pairs of shoes coming back and talking about, you know, this, this could be a possibility to then making that step of, well, let's come up with a, a name and a website and, cause, sure. you know, we come up with plenty of ideas but often whether they they become, you know, I guess follow traction is not always that part. So, so how did that go so from true. those ideas to, to, I guess, then building the platform? Yeah, sure. We'll, we'll definitely go into that. You're just touching on that GFC financial crisis issue. I mean, you know, we're going through a tough time now, so it'd be interesting to kind of dive a bit more into that as well, because out of these moments of crisis become, you know, such a, a forcing point for innovation, which is kind of exciting, even though the time is extremely confronting. Um, so how did we do it? So we went from, you know, kind of, I remember we were actually on the Gold Coast, um, at Christmas and kind of my two co-founders and I chatting about business ideas. And that was when the whole idea of designing shoes online came up. And then it, it sort of became, it's so true that that thing of, you know, the way that you eat an elephant is one bite at a time. So, you know, we started to you know, have a look online. Is anybody else doing this? Um, okay. Anyone who is offering design services online. And I would say still one of the great leaders of that is Nike with their Nike ID program. You know, how are they doing it? What looks good about it? Um, what doesn't work about it? If that's the case, what would we take on and what would we do differently? Um, do we think people would buy this and then starting to email all of our friends who patiently for many years answered our little survey questions and let us dig into their consumer side of their brains with shoes. So it really just was one thing at a time. And then one of my co-founders was an extremely talented software engineer. And so especially in those early stages, like him then having a swing at uh, what that first interface might look like, you know, um, my other co-founder, Michael and I, you know, going to travel to talk to manufacturers about how it would work and learning about the process and then thinking about how we transpose that into an online environment. So none of it happened overnight. I think it took us about nine months from the inception of the idea to actually launching it. So yeah, there was a ton of research that had to happen in the meantime. And there were many, many leaps of faith <laughs> as well along the way. Um, and we provided all the seed funding ourselves. So there was a very kind of clear runway on how long that would last. Going back to your comment, and I agree, um, it's probably timely that sometimes in amongst um, change and uncertain environments, it can actually forge innovation and it can forge this sense of, you know what, we've got nothing to lose mm -hmm. by, by looking into it. Um, what was that experience like for, for you then? So. I have to say then we were really fortunately in a place where we had savings and we were, you know, ready to do our own seed funding for the idea. And I will not deny like that, that liquidity and savings and preparedness for a rainy day is something that if you, if you don't have it, um, and not a lot of, not everyone does do that. And that's because there's, lots of other financial instruments and ways of running businesses or lives that 
that's okay. When these kinds of crises come along, usually having some liquidity is, you know, really where you can take um, those opportunities to their greatest level because all of a sudden into the market come um, really incredible talent that have been, you know, in these jobs that might no longer exist and though that talent might decide to start their own thing or that they would be excited to try build something with someone who's got this little you know flicker of an idea so you know talent is one place that it becomes really interesting the kinds of risk that your suppliers might want to take with you so I really am not sure but I would speculate that the suppliers that we originally worked with it wasn't really their business model to produce one pair of shoes at a time, but with other orders decreasing, you know, this was kind of a nice way for them to experiment with bringing their order volumes up and take a chance on this business model. So people are kind of more open to those kinds of things. And also as well, the whole world paradigm shifts in these, in these moments. And, you know, we start to have new or clearer and crisper needs that arise that require new solutions so, you know, there's kind of like this whole little harbor of ideas out there that, you know, is um, kind of getting really active for us to kind of pluck and develop. I would absolutely agree. And it can often can be the intersection between some of those changes where, where new sparks can arrive. Now, I understand once you yeah. had launched, um, it was within two months you had broken even. Was there, do you remember there was a point where you kind of went, oh, we're onto something here? Was there a moment in, in amongst the, the work and the steps and, and doing the next thing? Was there a bit of a realization that, hey, there might be something behind this? You know, I think there are multiple points of affirmation, particularly in that early step. So even just the first person who bought a pair of shoes from us, that wasn't someone that we knew. You know? <laughs> Got to celebrate those. Parents or, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. You know, okay. We're not crazy. And then seeing that increase to a regular number of pairs of shoes being sold per day. And then seeing, you know, investing in something or changing something about the website, whether investing in an ad or investing in, and then seeing what the ROI and that was and when it worked and when it didn't, of course, that was sad, but, you know, there were multiple little affirmations, but I honestly think even through the peak of the journey, I, I don't think we really took for granted or, you know, I certainly never felt particularly cocky because, you know, there are just, you, you're very finely aware in a business of all of the things that, you need to keep your eye on and to be running closely and carefully because so many things can happen. And sometimes they come out of the blue like COVID did. So yeah, this, I don't, I certainly didn't kind of feel at any point, yep, we've made it. That's it. (laughs) Yeah, no, there's always, there's always the next and always the the next pathway to growth. Now, one of the things that you have done here, we are sitting in, in 2020 is that you have published a book. Uh, and the book mm-hmm. tells and shares the journey of Shoes of Prey, the business, and particularly over that kind of 10-year trajectory and talks about really quite openly and very honestly um, not only your personal journey but a sense of um, the business closing up uh, for reasons of being unsustainable in that kind of mass market in the, in the model and the, the way that it is. And often these are stories that we don't get a, a glimpse into uh, behind uh, what is going on. And you, you, you know, you've shared that so openly in that, in that time. Why, 
I'm interested in why it was important for you to, I guess, share the story by putting it into a project of putting it forward in a book and and where did that kind of help you go through or understand even even your experience of the business? So what was the, I guess, the the impetus behind putting it into a book? When um when things were particularly when things were getting really complex and challenging um, and particularly, you know, not in a good way (laughs) towards the very end. So many people rose to talk to me about their story. And when people did share that with me, with openness and courage, it just gave me so much capacity to be able to put my foot, my next foot in front of the other and the one after that every day when it was just such a huge burden, such a big mental burden, such a big emotional, such a, you know, all of those things, just to know that while it felt to me like, Oh my God, you know, nobody's ever tried, tried this path before. And it's awful. And I, you know, I'm, I'm the only person to ever fail. <laughs> you know, when I was in that mindset, things were a lot, lot, lot more difficult to kind of get up in the morning to and to see with any kind of clarity. And when I, when people shared with me, it really was just so enormously helpful. Then when I started to really think about the things that we, we all always talk about, like we learn so much more from failing. Jordan's missed X amount of shots compared to the ones that he's hit, you know, over the course of his career. Um, you know, the most, um, successful children's book in the world, Dr. Seuss, I think was, I've heard, I mean, to verify this, was pitched to something like 74 publishers before someone picked it up in the first run, you know? <laughs> um, and we talk about all of these things, but it's not really often that anyone actually really shares it so that we can proactively, so that there's a something out there to lean on. And so I kind of just wanted to write it down to contribute to the creation of that path. Now, look, my story is not unique by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> um, it's I haven't written a book thinking that it's trailblazing or that it's um, kind of like this pioneering thing. It's not. Like so many people have been there before and gone through and recovered in ways that are unimaginable and far more extraordinary than anything I've been through. But my hope is that by putting something into the world about that, that hopefully if there's someone out there who's not got those communities around them, maybe the book will be something that gives them that kind of strength in their stomach to put foot in front of the other and reboot the next morning and things like that. In terms of me personally and what I think about it, you know, I know we were sort of saying before we jumped onto the podcast, every day of the week, I think about all the ways I would rewrite the book (laughs) because it is, it's, it was captured at a moment in time and even my understanding and processing and thinking about all of the things that happened develops every single day, you know, in very much in the same way that all of us experience our past. So yeah, writing a book is a very interesting process, as you would know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's the and and you do make a point. Like it is a point in time. It's the iteration of uh, that experience in in that moment. One of the things this book does, and I mean, you even even have it in the title. It's on the front cover of the book, and the book's called Reboot. Probably more than you ever wanted to know about starting a global business. <laughs> so, so it's that invitation <laughs> that there's going to be something more in there, and it, it certainly delivers. One of the things it does, I guess. It, it looks at the eye of the things that we term success 
and what does mm. success actually mean? And when you have a business and whether you call it failure or just, you know, the business has ended, it does, I guess, mean that we are invited to look at, well, what do we term as successful um, with the experience that you've gone through with Shoes of Prey, how have you, I guess, where did that, like, you know, your own definition of success come into play? What what was required for success in this business? What, what was it and has it changed and shifted because of your experience? My God, that's a great question. Um, yeah. So I think that, uh, this is not a question I've been asked before. Um, I think that success in the business was very, um, very much driven. You know, we, we'd really set it up in a very specific way. So there was a certain amount of growth year on year. Like there were, there were lots of metrics that kind of drove what our view of success of the business would be. And they were shared amongst our stakeholders. So growth year on year, the kind of brand adoption and recognition, um, looking at, you know, the positioning, who was wearing it, how were they wearing it? All of these things were kind of the metrics for success in that. And I guess, a, you know, a chunk, a facet of my identity was built into that in terms of sharing it with our, you know, with other women and talking about what that meant for not just their shoe cupboards, but in building a business too. So, you know, there were a lot of metrics around it and the way that that changed, I guess, like all of those got taken away with the, for all intents and purposes, when the business closed and there wasn't further steps that we could take when we hit that point to revive it and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, it was a very, I guess in lots of ways, I am still figuring out what my indicators or markers for success are now. One of the things that definitely changed was, um, you know, my personal life got to look in (laughs) and that now, you know, that was always something that I wanted to be very, to be prioritized, but I really failed in prioritizing it during that journey. And, you know, it felt very clear, like, you know, I was just very focused on the building of what we were making. I felt that I could really trust it. Uh, what I put in, I would get out, you know, all of that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, personal life is uh, not something you can have those metrics around. Now that has really important weight in it, not just with the birth of my child, but with my partner and the life that I'm building now. Um, and what those markers of success will look like for me in whatever I do next um, is actually a journey I'm on right now. So I, um, I recently listened to a podcast with Hugh Jackman and after that podcast, I just think he's even more of an extraordinary human being. Than is I that the before. one with Tim Ferriss? Um, yes. Oh my God. You've he, listened to it. He's honestly the greatest human being on earth. Is he not? Why listening to totally. that? <laughs> it's extraordinary. It's so, yes, yeah, super humble, like very, very cool. Um, and it, he talks about his business coach on that podcast and her name is Lauren Zander. And she's published a book called Maybe It's You. Um, <laughs> and so I'm working my way through that right now. As um, And I think in that podcast, he also talks about his father saying, you know, if you're not working on something in particular in terms of your next step in your career or developing that or really in it with those things, the thing that you should be doing is education. So I'm really kind of leaning back into that kind of learning mindset. And there's that great old quote from um, Steve Jobs about, him saying he's grateful, you know, he's really grateful for the time when he was fired from Apple because, you know, it sort of lifted the weight of that success to be able to go into the lightness of being a learner and being highly creative. So obviously I'm coming from a different position to 
Apple, <laughs> but sort of uh, really trying to lean into the weightlessness of that kind of learning again, which is really exciting. I'm going to have to look out for that book. Um, yeah, it's an extraordinary podcast and one to kind of listen into when you when you think about what, yeah, what is success and it's all of those things in in our life and in our world as well. Yeah, and I think too um, one of the things that I had always, always, always valued was around learning and development. And I think with Shoes of Prey, there was just, there was a lot of that happening in the day to day, but to have the opportunity now somewhere in amongst all of the changes and (laughs) kind of relentlessness of that to see if there's a place where I can find even an hour a day or whatever it is to invest in that learning and just strip it right back to the beginning is really exciting because I find within myself this little bit of friction oh by this age and by that experience you should just know everything and you should just hold those answers haven't you seen enough to just know and I think releasing yourself from that um me releasing myself from that is um feeling really exciting but I'm still releasing I haven't quite got there yet (laughs) (laughs) that's the point isn't it like we're all learning it's it's a it's a lifetime um journey I think that one Absolutely. Mm. And I think it is just this, this look of wonder and there's more, more to learn. Um, and the experiences that we've had, everything that's, you know, part of who we are today just helps to kind of add perspective, but also Mm. a sense of, okay, well, what else, what else can I gather? Where else can I grow? Uh, what else can I look, look at as well? Going back into, I guess, even just that, that experience for you, was there a moment with Shoes of Prey where you, I guess, realized or had the hint that the business was, was going down a path of, it being unstable or unsustainable. Was there a, was there a moment where that happened or was it something that kind of just evolved uh, over time? It definitely just evolved over time. I think, um, I think if there were really crisp, clear moments in that, it would certainly make paths much easier to follow and to execute on. So yeah, it it does. It's certainly a moving, a moving target in that sense. Part of what makes it such a movable feast as well is that, you know, especially in companies that are venture backed, you, you decide to take funding because you really believe that you have the model and the potential in the market and the product uh, or service um, that can make those returns and hit that high growth. And you bring a lot of your, as you would know, like bring a lot of your profitability forward. So you take the money on now, hire everybody, and then bring the business up to meet that level of operation. And when that, when you're coming to the end of one of those cycles in your runway of funding, it's always like sort of, I kind of think of it as kind of like, you know, you're really wide bandwidth when it's, when you've got that funding and then you start to narrow down, narrow down, narrow down, and then you get that next funding in for that next stage of growth. So I do think it is, um, kind of a, reasonably common experience as you go through all of those cycles in a venture backed business. But yeah, it's, it's not always, it's not, it's never really clear because until you, it's never clear until you've come to the end of knowing whether you're getting that funding in, whether you know, if you, those strategies you've put in place are going to work for that next stage of growth. You know, it's, it's never particularly clear. Was funding further funding an option or had that come off the table at the time? 
Um, so it, it came off. There was a lot of discussions around it, but at the very end it, it did come off the table. In terms of um, your own experience at that point in time, how did you ride some of those, that wave? I think we as human beings, we and particularly when success can be so closely aligned to our own sense of self-worth, criticism Mm. or a sense of failure or the shame that can be associated with that is something we wear as closely as we wear the successes. What helped you to navigate that? What were, whether it was the people around you or I guess some of the tools that you kind of had in your own backpack, so to speak, what were the things that helped you to navigate that experience personally? Sure. Um, So there were a few things. One was the people who really did step up and share with me, the people who kind of I asked advice of, who were advisors, who, you know, on board, all of that kind of thing. All of them stepped up to have those chats and to be like, hey, I've been in that position. Here's what happened. You know, here's here's how I felt. Hey, look, I came through, you know, to give you that hope. So that was really unbelievable. And the cool thing about that is that it's an external data point. And when you're going through something that is so personally punishable and something that you can really criticize yourself heavily over, those external data points are so important for you to gain perspective and sort of some sense of control in your gut to be able to keep stepping forward and know that it will be okay. And when I say know that it will be okay, I mean like that you'll wake up on another day and you'll do another thing and that, you know, you are still, you know, sort of have the capacity to do everything as best as you can for every single stakeholder, because obviously the outcome wasn't the best outcome that you could ever hope for. (laughs) Um, So the shared stories was one. Another one is really granular, but honestly really helped me. I, there's this song by Florence and the machine called shake it out or shake. No, hang on. One's the Taylor Swift song and one's shake it off. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Shake it out is Taylor Swift. I'm sure that's a great song too, but it's not the one I'm talking about. Florence, the machine, shake it off. Um, I literally listen to that song every single morning and I know it sounds so cheesy and corny, but it really was one of the things that helped me to feel like I was gearing up and that I could. Um, so that became, you know, sort of my anthem. Um, my friends and family were played an absolutely critical role during that time of being a place that I could really unfold about this because for team members, for any other stakeholder that, you know, I was working with at that time, like I needed to not unfold. You know, I needed to provide that strength, leadership. And I had had that side by side with my, particularly my co-founder, Michael. Um, and there was just a, a month or two at the very end where that, that changed and I needed to take that on. Um, so, you know, that was shared between us and, you know, he did an extraordinary job of that over all of the years of great success at Shoes of Prey. And towards the end where, you know, that sort of all got stripped away, my friends and family played a really important role in being the place where, you know, I could finish doing all of my calls, finish all of the strategy stuff, finish kind of things that need to be executed and, you know, do that, make those tough decisions and then call someone and say, God, that was awful. Or, you know, I, you know, I just, I hate myself for being in this position and to have somewhere to express that and put that, and um, be received fully into that was um, really important. Um, the things that I wish I'd done during that time were just the things like move my body. I had been really committed to exercise, hepatic history and anxiety and depression. And for me, it is the magic 
thing that helps to keep all of that in check. But I just devoted all of my time to the situation at hand. Um, and I, I do think that I may have been that guy in um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People who was just so busy soaring that he didn't stop to sharpen the saw. So, <laughs> you know, like it's just a in good terms analogy. of, um, yeah. yeah, so not that it caused me to drop anything or anything like that, but I do think that I may have weathered it a little better by having just one or two of those things like that or meditation to help. But it just, I honestly just didn't feel comfortable at the time putting energy into anything else other than the task at hand and making sure kind of every single aspect of it was explored as best as I possibly could with the resources that I had. We were talking before we even jumped onto the microphones that at this point in time with COVID-19, there are so many business owners, founders, leaders who are treading down a path that they never imagined that they would go uh, on in, and it's, it's affecting all industries. It's not, um, you know, it is one of those ones that there's not a single workplace, there's not a single industry that's, uh, that it's exempt from, from this experience. And, you know, some of your, your journey and, uh, your own kind of personal pathway is, you know, I think is relevant now, but also in any business, there's always ups and downs. There are times when things, unpredictable things can come out of left of field, things that you didn't plan for, things that you didn't hope for, um, mm. that, that need to be kind of navigating. And some of what you've just shared, I think is really powerful. Having those networks and investing in relationships and the people around you, having yeah. a, having a place to vent and, and, and talk it through as well. What are some of the, the habits now that you and I know this is interesting to say as a mum with a with a newborn. <laughs> so even before before being a mum, but even now, what are some of those those even from a granular level, some of those habits that you know are worth investing in, even yeah. in times of uncertainty and change? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll get to those. I just want to just put one second, just acknowledge God, business owners right now. I just feel just a surge of emotion when I think about the things that so many people are going through, really facing into uncertainty that wasn't of their own bringing and not knowing what six weeks for our friends in Melbourne, um, not knowing what 10 weeks, not knowing what months down the track are going to look like, you know, especially for our friends in America, you know, going through what they are with their caseload now. It's, it's tough and no one does know the tools that, <laughs> so look, some of these get implemented more, frame, more, more frequently than others. And it really depends on what my child's needs are at any given second. Um, <laughs> but one thing actually that I do do every single day is I started reading a lot of stuff about the Stoics and Stoicism and kind of discovered that, you know, this has been an underpinning philosophy for me for a very, very, very long time. I just didn't know what it was. And so there's this great book by Ryan Holiday and it's called The Daily Stoic. And for every day of the year, it has one of the Stoic quotes from Marcus Aurelius or Seneca or Epictetus, I think. I don't know how to pronounce his name. So if someone was to punch back and say, hey, this is what it is, that's great. But it's, it provides one of those quotes and then a breakdown of its application in the modern world. And honestly, it takes about two minutes to read. And there's also a podcast called The Daily Stoic, where you just tune in for three minutes and listen to what the Stoic thought of the day is. And if I do that kind of first thing in the morning, along with a little warm water and lemon, you know, to drink, then that kind of really helps to set my mindset for the day. And I found that to be really helpful. 
Um, the things that I also do is I try and just get out for a walk every single day as well. And not just a casual walk, but, you know, up and down hills with a pram, <laughs> you know, work a sweat up and all that kind of thing, just for getting outside and remembering there's so much more to the world than you, I think is an enormously comforting thought to me. Everyone has so much going on. The things that I'm thinking about and feeling vulnerable about really don't mean a lot to anyone else in the world. And when I pull myself out of my own head simply by stepping outside the front door and getting my blood pumping, it's the greatest relief and also makes me laugh because I'm like, oh my God, Jody, it's <laughs> you're not that important. You know, it's okay. Go go build something, go do something, like do something positive. Stop ruminating on all this useless stuff. So, you know, that is definitely helpful and really easy to execute. So maybe it could be as simple as um walking while you're on that call that you're taking or just even just taking a walk around the block in the, when you decide to end your day. Um, something else that helps for me that's a bit of a ritual is I love cooking and just that ritual of focusing on, you know, chopping something finely or doing whatever it is and putting it all together. I find just somehow very nourishing, not just in the way of the food, but also in terms of a process and providing something for my family. So that's something I'm doing a lot of. And when I can, I add an actual component of an exercise regime into it to kind of link back into that thing that really helps me get through the tough times of high levels of anxiety and things like that. But that is more up to my child these days as to <laughs> whether I get to fit that in or not. <laughs> sets, sets a benchmark for you, whether it's, whether today's okay or not. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, but the beautiful thing about that is my child requires such presence of me as well. And when you pair that with kind of waking up and getting that stoic mindset um, for the day, it's those two things are pretty rewarding. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that sense of being present. I love that um, sense of perspective as well. Just that realization when you step outside your door, actually, there's another whole world going on. I'm not even a part of it. (laughs) I'm this tiny little piece of the puzzle Uh, and it's actually okay. Yeah. Just that sense of, I mean, it's sort of interesting. It's kind of like that thing about, you know, realizing you know, what our size is compared to the universe and things like that. And you can either take that as intimidating or as such a relief. (laughs) and and for me it's a massive relief there's this whole ecosystem of the world going on up there there are people going through much better there are people going through much worse and you know I'm a part of that whole ecosystem and as long as my actions and words and all that is in service of that ecosystem this stuff that's going on and blowing out of proportion inside of my head is 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 not even a blip on that Yeah, absolutely. One of the things, and I guess even going back to, you mentioned in, um, in high school and the decisions around, you know, where to go out of high school, a big core part of you is creativity and having a kind of creative expression. Uh, do you have an outlet at the moment or how important is it to, to find and, and still, I guess, feed that, that sense of creativity? Yeah, it's actually really important and I don't have the consistent outlet at the moment. I took an art class online recently, actually, uh, one evening with this, a friend of mine started an awesome school of art in Bangkok. It's called Peron School of Art and um, he started running classes online and it was just it felt like the class went for maybe 10 or 15 minutes and it had gone for three hours <laughs> and it was kind of through the evening and it felt phenomenal just to really engage with color and pattern and 
you know, it was a beautiful deep dive. So no, I don't have a consistent outlet right now, but I do kind of every now and then just put my sketch pad out beside the play mat <laughs> and sort of try and get a couple of squiggles out for ideas and things like that, or even just free form to, um, to engage that part of my brain, which feels really good. Yeah. I think that, um, I, I definitely had a learning probably a couple of years ago now where someone was talking to me about doing creativity just purely for serendipity, like for no other reason other than just to have an outlet and it doesn't need to be seen. It doesn't need to bring in money. It doesn't need to do anything else. Uh, but so important, I think, and creativity can be in any form. Uh, it doesn't need totally. to be arts. I've, I, I know accountants who are as creative with Excel spreadsheets as, you know, they could ever be and it's not my outlet yeah. but, uh, you know, I think finding <laughs> those, those forms and outlets is, um, is really key, particularly in times of change and uncertainty as totally. well. Actually, one other thing that I've been doing is I've been kind of keeping a bit of a diary as well, which, um, and I don't mean dear diary. I mean like just, and there's been two forms. One has been sort of writing down the experience of going through a pandemic. And the reason I'm doing it is actually inspired by a journalist at the New York times who wrote an article appealing to people to document and diarize their experience at this time. Because when we look back on history, the data is all documented. The course of decisions is well documented, but frequently what's not is what the experience was like. And that's where we get so much richness in our culture and learnings of and experience of history for the future and what they can take away from it. So yeah, I've been doing that mostly for my little one so that, you know, being born in the middle of this pandemic, you know, what a curious thing to be able to look back on and see those stories. The other thing is something that was suggested to me called daily pages, which are morning pages, which is where you force yourself to just start writing and write three full pages. And it really does pull out of your brain, all the things that are bothering you and what solution you might come to because if you're forced to write for three pages it forces you to sort of somehow it just brings out the things that are sitting in your head um and then by the time you've just kept writing and been forced to keep writing you've sort of forced yourself to a solution or you know it sort of pulls a solution part of me out of you which is really really cool and I haven't been super consistent with that but there have been two really nice creative outlets as well yeah I think I haven't heard that one of capturing the experience I really like that the story of Mm. what we're going through in a generation time or, or a couple of generations of, yeah, just what that experience is like and just that freeform writing. It's so something tactile, something really tangible about getting it out that helps us see it in a way that's that's really different as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm conscious of your time and we will come to the end. I've got mm-hmm. a couple of questions for you. One of them is thinking about if you could go back to, you know, the start of Shoes of Prey and the business and, and not necessarily that you would change any of the experience or any of the trajectory of it, but if you could give yourself one piece of advice or leave a short little note next to your computer back then, do you have any sense of, of what you might say or, or what kind of message that you might leave for yourself if it was a message from the future back back to you starting that business? Yeah, I think I would have told myself you really can't be everything to everyone and just to give myself the space and time to stop, learn, focus and go through it in a way that is trusting. So I always felt very frenetic and very like, okay, I've got to get this, got to do this, got to do this, you know, and, and that's, I would have sort of encouraged myself to keep that hunger and keep that drive and sort of output. But 
to just um, hold more of a, a confidence in my stomach, I, I guess, a bit more in my gut to know that really believe that it's okay to be going through that process. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. And as a final question, it's a question I ask every guest is when you hear that term to live a standout life, what does that mean for you or what comes up for you? Just being in a moment of joy and belly laughs, like to live a life that, you know, there's so much really generous and extraordinary literature out there that comes from there was a, I'm sure that you've seen it and I wish I had the the exact reference for you, but it was a palliative care nurse who compiled the top five lessons that she heard from people who had come through palliative care. She said they were so consistent and, you know, all of those are about the real personal joy of the life that you've lived. And um, to me, that's what the standout life is. Beautiful. Jodie, thank you so much for your time. I'm excited to hear what uh, the rest of 2020 brings you as uh, as the identity continues to expand and and grow um and yeah i've loved uh sharing the stories with you thank you so much for having me and um thanks for creating a place to have conversations like these If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.